Let us pray. Lord, we thank you for scripture. We thank you that you speak to us as we read it, that it's relevant to our lives today. And Lord, for any scripture that this morning has already spoken to us, help us to reflect on that and to go back to it throughout the day. And Lord, I pray in these coming moments that you would speak through me, and Lord, that you would speak in spite of me. In Jesus' name, amen. So my son, Luke, has this sheep or lamb, and his name is Edgar. And um, Luke got, Emily got this uh, when she was uh, pregnant with Luke, and uh, at a wedding, or wedding, uh, baby shower, and this has been around Luke for a long time, and when we started dating, I, I named him Edgar, and Luke's kind of eyeing me right now, because I, I had to take it from his bed this morning, he was sleeping, um, but this is something, many of you may have like a, you know, blankie or, or a um, stuffed animal that maybe you, you had as a kid, or your kids grew up with, but but this has just been something that Luke has always held on to. Uh, he's taken it with him places. Uh, he has, um, of course, in his older age now, he's not as clingy to Edgar as he once was, but sometimes we can still catch him just giving him little kisses, you know, or, or holding him and things like that. But he's, he's always in the bed with him. He always would, would um, we, we'd take him places. I don't know how many times we've washed him. I mean, there's like hardly any stuffing left in him. Um, you know, he's just flimsy, but... Um, but it's, it's important to him. It's an important part of, of his life. There's something that he has found useful uh, in Edgar. Um, and uh, Edgar is just, a, I think even sometimes we've misplaced him and, uh, you know, had like a season of mourning and all this stuff. You know, he's just part of the family, you know. Edgar's wonderful. So if you notice that uh, sitting up here this morning, I was wondering what that was. Um, that's Edgar. But a lot of times... Um, the reason I share that with you um, is because in many ways, um, it's a picture of the importance of Scripture to us as, um, as disciples of Jesus Christ and, and how um, it's important for us to, to carry those words that have been handed down to us uh, that mean so much to us that are in the Bible. And, um, you know, maybe you've met people who just have a, a worn out Bible uh, like Edgar's worn out, you know, because they've read it, they've underlined it, they've, they've highlighted, they've, the pages are, um, you know, all messed up because there's just been so much flipping and, and, and reading. And, um, you know, it's important that we, that we carry Scripture uh, in our hearts and with us uh, physically, whether it's on our phones or um, bringing our Bibles to church or whatever it may be. Um, as Luke would carry Edgar around because it was that important to him and it meant something to him. And, you know, Scripture is, is, is vital, you know, in the life of, of being a disciple of Christ. It's our sacred Scripture that, um, you know, although written in the hands of, of uh, written uh, through the hands of, of human beings like you and I, uh, we still affirm that God um, inspired the Scriptures, as Second uh, Timothy tells us, and, and how even today... Um, the Holy Spirit can speak to us as we, as we read the Bible and as we read scriptures. And, and we can read the same one over and over sometimes and, 
as Don said earlier, and just kind of say, uh, wow, I never saw it like that before. There's something unique in that word for me today. And uh, it's alive. It's, it's, it's active. It's, it's powerful. And everything in Scripture, everything that we need to know about um, salvation, you know, and it's all in Scripture. It's all there. And it's all um, part of, of who we are and our discipleship and, and learning um, each and every day about the Bible. And as you know, uh, many of you know, the Bible has an Old Testament and a New Testament. And the Old Testament, you know, much of our Bible um, is, uh, you know, Genesis to, to Malachi. And uh, I always think, uh, think about themes throughout the Bible. So the, the Bible is telling a narrative story um, from beginning to end. And there's kind of three main uh, themes in, in the Old Testament and kind of three main themes in the New. And um, sometime in the future, I hope to go through with through those themes with you on Sunday mornings. Um, but really, the Old Testament um, is written in Hebrew originally, and with some Aramaic uh, here and there. Uh, but ultimately, um, the themes are creation, as we see in the beginning. Uh, and, then, and then there's uh, crisis or rebellion or the fall, whatever you want to call it, uh, where humans rebel against God's good plan. And, there, and, and there's imperfection, and there's, there's uh, disobedience in the world, and it causes chaos. And then there's the story of Israel, the people of Israel, and their journey to the promised land, and, and, and their whole history uh, is made up of that. Uh, and then the New Testament um, is um, obviously uh, written in, much, in a much shorter time frame than the Old Testament was, just the middle of the first century into some of the second century. Um, and this is, uh, you know, Matthew to, to Revelation. And originally, this, uh, the, New, the New Testament was written in the Greek language. And as I shared with the kids earlier, this is where we learn about the story of Jesus. The, the birth, the life, the death, the resurrection of Jesus is all uh, told uh, from four different accounts in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And uh, the New Testament uh, carries three themes um, of, of the story of Jesus, um, the, the birth and mission of the church through the power of the Holy Spirit, and then ultimately uh, a, a hope and vision for new creation. Um, and, and that's kind of the themes that are, that are going through the New Testament. And as disciples of Christ, we ought to strive to be people who seek to grow in our faith through reading Scripture, through talking about it with others, and, and letting the Scripture speak to us and reflecting on it. And church tradition is important, looking at the history of the church and, and, um, and, and, and learning from people throughout history of the church. Uh, that's important. Uh, learning to, to reason and use our minds and ask questions, that's important. Uh, our own experience is important because um, our own experience plays a, a, a vital role into how we read Scripture and interpret it, whether we realize it or not. And, uh, but ultimately, we always start with Scripture. As, as Christians, as disciples, we want to we go to Scripture to see what Scripture has to say on, on any particular thing. And uh, Scripture becomes a big part of our lives, or at least it, it should be a part of our lives. And throughout history, some people have taken the Bible absolutely literally, while others maybe pick and choose their beliefs, and then why others completely disregard Scripture um, completely. Uh, but the Bible has an awful lot to say, doesn't it? There's a lot of things that the Bible talks about and says, and and um, over 30,000 some verses. So that, that's a lot to say. There's a lot going on in Scripture. And as Christians, 
the Bible can certainly be comforting at times in our lives. It can certainly bring comfort and hope. And then oftentimes, uh, we might read certain scriptures that are very confusing uh, and might cause us to scratch our head, but we choose to, to wrestle with it and, and believe um, the, the scripture and, and what it says. And I wonder if any of you have ever seen a bumper sticker that looks something like this. Um, the Bible says it, I believe it, that settles it. You're, anybody ever heard something similar to that? Or maybe uh, God said it, I believe it, that settles it. Uh, let's just say this together right here. The Bible says it, I believe it, that settles it, right? That, that's kind of a, a saying that, that has been around, and, and you may have, like I said, seen it, you know, posted in different places or on bumper stickers and all sorts of things like that. And that's kind of the topic we're looking at today when it comes to this series of sermons I've been doing uh, in regarding um, things Christians say and how what's true about some of these statements and what's not true about some of these statements. And many of you, like I said, have heard something similar to this before. And what people mean potentially when they say a statement like this um, is they're saying that they're choosing to believe and put scripture um, over whatever else maybe society or culture may be teaching that may be in contradiction to scripture. So uh, they, they may be saying another way, you know, I don't need to hear why you think something is right or wrong. The Bible clearly says this, and that's why I believe it. So, you know, I'm, I'm going to choose to believe that uh, over what maybe you're telling me. And for me, that, that settles it. You know, you can make fun of me. You can tell me I'm wrong. That's fine. But the Bible says it, and I believe it. And in one sense, that's, um, that's great, because someone who says this is potentially trying to convey um, that they want to be faithful to scripture. They want to be faithful to what they feel the Bible is teaching, and they want to honor that. Um, and perhaps, you know, that's something we all need to consider, uh, being faithful to the scriptures as we can, uh, the scriptures that we have that have been handed down to us. But what causes some Christians to scratch their head at this popular statement, the Bible says it, I believe it, that settles it, is when the Bible says things that, quite frankly, are just kind of hard to believe. For example, Leviticus chapter 11, verse 7 and 8. The pig, for even though it has divided hooves and cleft-footed, it does not chew the cud. It is unclean for you. Of their flesh you shall not eat, and their carcasses you shall not touch. They are unclean for you. Which puts scrapple sandwiches and the game of football into complete question, Right? Leviticus chapter 11, verse 10. But anything in the seas or streams that does not have fins and scales of the swarming creatures in the waters and among all the living creatures that are in the waters, they are detestable for you. So go ahead and eat fish. But if any of y'all like shrimp, it seems that that's detestable according to the Bible. Exodus chapter 21, verse 15, whoever strikes father or mother shall be put to death. Verse 17, whoever curses father or mother shall be put to death. Um, okay. Leviticus 19, 27, you must not cut off the hair on your forehead or clip the ends of your beard. Exodus chapter 35, verse 2. 
Six days shall be, work shall be done, but on the seventh day you shall have a holy Sabbath of solemn rest to the Lord. Whoever does any work on it shall be put to death. So I know all of you have taken a day this week to do absolutely nothing. And on your day off, you're not cutting the grass, and you're not working around the house, and you're not doing chores, because the Bible says ultimately we should be put to death if we're doing that. Matthew chapter 5, New Testament. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It's better for you to lose one of your members than your whole body to be thrown into hell. If your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It's better for you to lose one of your members than for your whole body to go to hell. Now, I can tell you, if I took that literally, I would have one eyeball and one hand. And I suspect many of you would also have one eyeball in one hand. So that's just a few of many scriptures that make us pause and say, when we say something like this, the Bible says it, I believe it, that settles it. Because the Bible says a lot. And yes, the Bible does say those things, but God is not looking for us to do harm and horrible things to ourselves and other people just because it may be a verse in the Bible. So let me share two thoughts with you this morning for you to consider when you're reading scripture. The first is this, context is important. My, um, one, one time my, um, my best friend's dad was uh, sending text messages to his son and his son was telling me this and, um, and, and his, his dad was saying things like, hey, what are you doing, you know, today? Or, uh, Questions like that, but they were all in like capital letters. And um, he was reading them as, you know, when you read capital letters, you know, you, you think somebody's like yelling at you. And he's thinking like, what's wrong with my dad? Like, he never gets mad at me like this. Like, he's texting me like, what are you doing? Or when are you coming home next? You know, he's like, dad, why are you yelling? Stop it. Like, he's taking this in a way that that is wrong. And, and the dad says, you know, I'm not mad. I, I just can't see the small print, so I have to use the large letters. And I have to use caps lock, you know. And, 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 but, but you all know, if somebody sent you a message with these big letters, you would think the tone, like, tone it down a little bit. What do you mean? Like, it's okay. And, and that was just a misunderstanding. That was, a, that, that, that was an, uh, an example of if that son knew the context of why the father was writing that way, it would have made more sense. And that's important when we read scripture. If I yell the word fire in a building versus a shooting range, people are going to have different reactions. Why? Because of the context. If somebody yells fire in a building, you get up, you panic, you run out, or you see how bad it is, or if there's anything that needs to be done, and you, and you get safety. If you're on a shooting range and someone yells fire, there's not as much panic. That word just simply means, you know, it's time to shoot at whatever given target uh, that people are shooting towards. So the same word can cause different reactions based on the context. And that's important. Every book of the Bible was written in a specific time by, a, by a certain human hands in a specific place, to a specific audience, and um, for specific reasons. 
And when we try to research that, understand that, and, and learn about that, that's when we are doing what's called good biblical interpretation. When we're learning about what's going on in the world in this time, what is the author trying to convey? What does it mean for me? You know, those sorts of things. And that way, uh, we're reading the Bible in a healthy way. So when a lot of people say the Bible believes it, or the Bible says that I believe it, that settles it, are sometimes um, just trying to defend maybe a personal view that they hold um, without even taking time to look at the context. And they may be more concerned about being right, or, and they you know, maybe cherry-pick a verse here or there to support a certain view that they have on something. And we've all done it, including myself. We're all guilty of that at some point or another. But sometimes as Christians, we don't take time to think about the context. And we end up making a big mess when we make things so literal. And for example, in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, uh, Paul says, As in all the churches of the saints, women should be silent in the churches, for they shall not be permitted to speak, but should be subordinate. As the law says, if, any, if there's anything they desire to know, let them ask their husbands at home, for it is shameful for a woman to speak in church. And that's not even Old Testament. That's New Testament after the time of Jesus. And I don't know about you, but I've, I've seen some uh, women this morning talking in church and having conversations and women preach in the church, women sing up front in the church. And um, what are we saying here? Are we saying we're not following Scripture? Well, if we look at the context of this, Paul is saying that for a specific reason in that day. And a lot of scholars believe that men and women would sit in separate spaces during worship. And, and when instruction was going on, women didn't have the luxury of being educated like men did. And, and oftentimes they would be confused during certain teachings and not understand. Or, or they would just maybe talk amongst themselves or... or yell over to their husbands, like, what, what does he mean by that? Or what's going on? And, and it was becoming a distraction. And Paul was saying, um, in a kind of blunt way, that, um, that wait till you get home to talk about that, um, not in this particular space and arena. And when we, when we try to understand the context, um, uh, it, it helps you to understand more of what, why Paul was saying that. Um, but many people have just ripped that verse right out of the whole Bible and just said, see, women can't be pastors. They're supposed to be silent in the church. Can you imagine if I sat down and had a ladies' meeting and just said, hey, women of the church, um, care about you, I love you, but um, I need you to know I'm just having a big problem with you, with you talking um, at all on a Sunday morning. Um, I know it sounds crazy. I know it's a little silly, but as, as the Bible says, and I have to follow the scriptures here, women are supposed to be silent in the church. And I'm really sorry, but I'm just going to need you to, to, to tell me that you're going to be willing to, to not talk. It's only the men that are allowed to talk in the church. And I can just see some of your faces now. Like, what are you talking about? Well, I, I'm sorry, but the Bible says it, and I have to choose to believe that. And to me, I'm sorry, that just kind of settles it. So I just... I, I'm sorry, I just, I don't want to hear a peep on Sunday mornings anymore. You know, the Bible clearly states that, you know, but, but when you look into more of what was going on in that day, it helps us to understand it more. So remembering context is important. 
and trying to learn about that. And there's good Bible commentaries that can help us with that and all sorts of things and teachings. And... But when we read the Bible, it's important to ask questions like this. What did this scripture mean to its original audience? Why was it written? What are some of the differences between that culture and right now where we live? What are some things that are similar? Is there any truth to this scripture that's timeless? You know, that's, that, that, that's just, it would fit in any culture, anywhere, and any time. And what might be God, what, God, what might God be trying to say to me um, and convey to me um, at this point in my life through this scripture? Because God does still speak to us. But something like that can help us to read scripture in a more healthy way because anyone can get their hands on the Bible and find a verse to justify anything they want to gain power, to, to, to abuse someone, anything. And a lot of abuse has been done to people in the church, unfortunately, because of a bad interpretation of Scripture that was taken way out of context. And these are things we want to avoid. When we read Scripture, we want to try to, to read them in the right context. And the second thing I would share is this, is that we want to strive to use Jesus as a lens in which we interpret the Scriptures that we want to remember the teachings of Jesus. Jesus is the image of the invisible God. Jesus is what God has to say to us. And Jesus came and lived among us. And Jesus did not come to abolish the Old Testament law, but he says he came to fulfill it. But even at times in ministry, Jesus would often address Scripture, what we now know as the Old Testament, and he would talk about that scripture, but then he would kind of throw a curveball. And we've talked about this before. Jesus would say things like, you've heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. So he's quoting scripture. And then he says, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. And he says things like, you've heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. And then Jesus says, but I say to you, do not resist the evildoer. Learn to turn the other cheek. So Jesus himself doesn't approach scripture in a, in a way that would convey the Bible says it, I believe it, that settles it. Because even Jesus quotes scripture and then says, but I say to you, listen to me. And sometimes we call Scripture the Word of God, and I don't have a problem with that, but in a sense, uh, we, we say that because, um, you know, we believe these are uh, God's words written through the hands of humans, uh, but ultimately, the, the true Word of God is Jesus himself. As John tells us, the Word became flesh. So Scripture, in a way, is a collection of words that point us to the true Word, who is Jesus. And as Christians who care deeply, at the, uh, deeply about the Bible, we've got to read the Bible carefully in a way where we're always being reminded of the person and the work of Jesus. We don't ignore the Bible. It's not to ignore certain scriptures that we don't know what to do with because there are so many tough scriptures that we have to wrestle with and we have to address them. They're there. But when we read them in the light and in the lens of who Jesus was, it can be very helpful to say, what did Jesus care about? 
And how does that fit in with the scripture that I'm struggling with? And when it seems that there's a Bible verse that's in complete contradiction to the teaching of Jesus, I'm going with Jesus every time. And it can be helpful for us to inter interpret scripture when we keep the message of Jesus as core. And Jesus had some tough teachings and sayings as well. Jesus, um, one of the ones that a lot of people have struggled with with the teachings of Jesus is his, um, his, his very um, strict teaching about divorce and um, how there's only permitted, divorce is only um, acceptable if, in one case or whatever. I remember a lady at a, the church I was at before I came here who was just so broken about being divorced. And she was reading this scripture about what Jesus says about divorce, and, and she just couldn't imagine how guilty she felt. She, was, she just felt like she could never get remarried because that would mean she's committing adultery. And I just had to sit with her and listen and... I had to go back to this context and, and read it and study it. And I and ended up doing a sermon on it and um, in front of the whole church and talking about divorce and um, talking about how sometimes that is an option. And sometimes, um, sometimes you need to get out. Um, and Jesus would have no part of some of the abuse that some people suffer in marriages. Um, but yet we tell people they must stay because Jesus says no to divorce. And, but Jesus also says no to how you're being treated. And there's just so much brokenness, and I could just see it in her. And so many people in the church today are remarried. And it's not even, even though Jesus condemns it as we read it at face value, he also shows extreme compassion to women and to all people. And it's interesting because but it, this is before my day, but I've had people tell me that in churches, there was a time where a pastor would refuse to marry someone if you had been previously divorced to officiate the ceremony. And they would say, well, look what Jesus says. I'm not doing it. And that's happened. And maybe that's happened to some of you. But from my estimation, most of the church is past that now. I, I would, I'm, I've married people who have been divorced before, and I've sat with them and talked with them and things like that, and um, it seems like most of the church has, has kind of moved past that, although it seems at face value what Jesus is saying is, is, is condemning. And every generation has these, has these hot-button topics. Every generation, you know, even in the last hundred years, you know, can, can women be in ministry? Can women be pastors? Can um, it, can we remarry someone if they've been divorced? All these things have, have come up, and, and then the church kind of, um, a lot of the church uh, continues to, to move on, and, and it doesn't become such an issue anymore. And in some churches, it still is issues, but it's certainly a hot topic. And the hot topic of my lifetime, and for many of you, if you're kind of in the millennial generation or um, whatever, um, the big hot topic button in the church in particular uh, right now, uh, and has been even before, you know, I was born in the 80s, so before that, is what do we do uh, with the LGBTQ community? What do we do with people who um, are lesbian, gay, 
bisexual, transgender, queer, uh, are they allowed to be fully included in the church or not? What do we do with that? And it's been a discussion on and on. Is it a sin to be gay? Are people born that way? Or is that their choice? Some say the Bible clearly condemns homosexuality, so therefore it's a sin. Others say that the homosexuality that's condemned in the Bible is not the same thing as two gay people who are committed uh, to one another and to love and support one another. Some people, um, and you know, as Jesus talks about divorce, the hard part about this one is that Jesus never talks about homosexuality. So then that causes a whole other discussion. How would Jesus embrace the LGBTQ community? Would he be okay with gay people getting married if they were committed and loving support of one another? Or would he say uh, something similar to the woman who was caught in adultery? Would he say, I love you, um, you're a child of God, but this is not God's intent, so go and sin no more. This is an ongoing conversation um, that is going on, in particular, in our denomination. And that's, uh, I, I want to make you aware of, of some things that are going on this morning, uh, because you deserve to know, and I don't want you to be surprised uh, and with some things coming up down the road. So I just want to take a few moments to go down this track with you this morning and to let you know what's happening in the United Methodist Church. Um, so um, in our United Methodist Church, we have what's called a book of discipline. It's not a book of punishment, bad boy, bad girl. It's not like that. It's it's a book that uh, talks about how we live out our faith. It, it has everything in it from our beliefs, um, um, from back when uh, Wesley, you know, and, and all that. It has our doctrine. It has what we believe about, about everything. You know, it's got uh, even our social principles um, of where the denomination's voice is on certain things. And if you want to become a pastor in the United Methodist Church, these are the things you have to do, and you have to go through this process, and the property of the church and the committee structures, everything's in here. So when I was ordained in June, I had to make a vow as part of my covenant that I'm going to uphold the discipline. So as United Methodist Church, um, um, I'm going to order the church in the way that we have agreed upon uh, through the book of discipline. Um, and this only happens, this is the voice of the church. So this can only be altered and changed at a place called General Conference. And that happens every four years where an equal number of laity, such as yourselves and pastors, um, are nominated from each uh, conference. So we're in the Peninsula Delaware Conference, which is Delaware and the Eastern Shore of Maryland. And depending on your membership size of the conference, so we send four people. So we have four votes in this thing. Um, two, two lay people and two clergy. Um, so it, it's not the bishops that are deciding what's in here. This is, this is the people of the church and the pastors of the church that are nominated to go and represent the entire denomination. So anything that ever changes has to happen at General Conference. Um, so currently, since the 70s, our book of discipline has stated that homosexuality is incompatible with Christian teaching. Uh, so therefore, um, pastors are not permitted to perform same-sex wedding ceremonies. Um, um, also, um, if, you're, if you're gay or lesbian or whatever, and you're and you're open about that, and you feel called to ministry and to be a pastor, uh, you're not permitted to do so because of what our discipline says, um, and those sorts of things. So anytime you get a group of people together, um, you're going to have disagreements on all sorts of things. And 
this has been an ongoing uh, back and forth dialogue in our denomination for a long time. And there are many, and I need you to hear this, there are many good and faithful and loving followers of Jesus in the United Methodist Church that disagree about the topic around human sexuality and same-sex marriage. Most all United Methodist churches, and this one included, have people in it that would disagree on issues around human sexuality. That doesn't make them less Christian. That doesn't make them um, uh, less a child of God, but there's disagreement. So most, um, I know fellow pastors, uh, colleagues of mine, um, that agree with the current book of discipline, and they, they don't want it to change. They, they're not going to marry same-sex couples, those sorts of things. And I also have pastor colleagues uh, that wish that they could be permitted to marry a gay couple that's been a part of their church for years. Um, there are bishops who disagree on this. Um, there are lay people in every... So there, there's, there's disagreement on this throughout the denomination. And we're coming to a point now where it, <clears throat> I think people are tired of kicking the can down the road and, and that something just needs to be talked about and addressed. Um, I've seen a lot of nastiness <clears throat> on, from both sides, by the way, from those uh, on the more you know, uh, progressive side, if you want to call it, or the more traditional conservative side. I've seen ugliness and arrogance on both sides. I've seen <clears throat> a refusal to listen a lack of love towards your neighbor on both sides. Um, and the reason I mentioned this to you this morning is because I want to make you aware of something that's coming up in several months, um, an important set of dates um, in the life of our church. So in 2016, at our general conference, people were really thinking, we're going we're gonna to figure out what's going to happen in regards to human sexuality in our denomination. Are we going to split? Are we going to stay together? What's going to happen? Because there's just so much disagreement about this. And they kind of kicked the can down the road again. And what happened was at General Conference in 2016, um, the, the lay and clergy delegates voted and authorized the bishops of our denomination to form a commission uh, called the Commission on a Way Forward. And their goal was to get together uh, for a couple of years and figure out, is there a way that we can move forward and preserve the unity in our church? Because we have so much in common, but we disagree on this. What are some ways that we can move forward? So out of their time meeting, and by the way, this commission has people from in different places in the world, has um, um, bishops on it, it had lay people on it, it had pastors on it, there was gay people on it, there were straight people on it, married people... So there's, a, there's voices from all sides that were represented in this commission. So after they did their work, um, they put forth three plans that are in place that will be discussed at a, at a special called general conference, which I think has only happened one other time in our history. Uh, so this February in St. Louis in 2019, there's going to be a special called general conference where this is the only thing they're going to be talking about. And this is, um, th this is, this is the topic. It's not, because at General Conference, you talk about all sorts of things in those 10 days, but this is going to be several days where we try to figure out where do we go moving forward. 
So I want to briefly tell you about the three plans that this commission brought forth. One of them is the one church plan or the one church model. And this is the plan that would essentially uh, leave decisions to allow same-gender weddings up to churches, individual churches, and to allow gay ordination um, to different conferences. Um, so, for example, two Ch Meth United Methodist churches in Detroit, one of them um, could, could say, we're going to perform same-sex wedding ceremonies, and the church two blocks away could say, we have voted to not do that. Uh, but if you all do that, we're still in ministry together, whatever. You can do that. We won't. That sort of thing. This plan would also remove the language that's been in our book of discipline since 1962, and it would no longer say that homosexuality is incompatible with Christian teaching. So this plan uh, also would allow for protection um, for United Methodists who view homosexuality as sinful, um, so they would be protected in that plan as well. Um, and to let you know, this is the plan that a majority, not all, but a majority of our bishops are endorsing and recommending that we do. Um, so uh, again, the bishops don't decide what happens, but this, they've kind of said this is the one that, that we're recommending as a whole. Um, although all of them don't agree with that, the majority of them agree that this, this one church plan is where they want to head. And then there's the traditional plan that's brought forward, and that's to leave the current, basically that's to keep things the way they are, and to keep the current language about homosexuality the way it is, but it, but it also calls to enforce stronger accountability for those who don't follow it. So there's been pastors um, who have violated uh, people have been upset because, you know, when you get ordained, you uphold the discipline. And then there's been pastors who have, um, uh, there was a big one in Pennsylvania several years ago where a, a United Methodist ordained elder uh, performed a same-sex um, wedding ceremony. Um, it was his son, and he, he married his son and, and, and the son's uh, partner. And um, there was church trials. It was ugly. It was nasty or whatever. But people get, um, a lot of people have gotten upset because, you said you were going to do this, and now you're violating what you said you were going to do in your covenant. So this traditional plan would really um, strengthen accountability, and there would be more um, punishment enforced to pastors and things like that who would break that covenant. Um, another thing that caused the big uproar was um, a couple years ago, uh, a conference out west uh, elected um, a, a lesbian bishop. Uh, so there, there's a lesbian bishop also in our connection now, and people have been upset about that as well. So the traditional plan would, would cause for more accountability, keep things the way they are, and if people don't agree with it, we need to provide them a way out that's, that's, um, that's graceful and, and uh, loving um, and things like that. And the, the other issue that comes with this is uh, if you leave the denomination, um, you don't... We have what's called a trust clause. So uh, if a United Methodist Church leaves the denomination, that doesn't mean that they get to keep their building and their property. So that's also becoming an issue. Like, what do we do if we leave? You know, we have to turn the building over to the conference or whatever. So that's kind of um, mixed up too. The connectional model is the third one that was presented. And this basically would reorganize the church in the United States with different conferences um, 
basically you would have like different branches. So we would still kind of be connected, but there might be a more progressive branch or conservative branch or however you want to say it, uh, based on their perspective of LGBTQ ministry. So this would, this would take the longest, this would take a really long time to do because um, we have different things in the book of discipline that you would have to have a two-thirds vote, I think, of every annual conference and then a two-thirds vote at general conference and all these constitutional amendments would have to take place. And uh, this one's a really high hurdle and would be, be from what I've heard, years to implement. Um, and apparently, um, our bishop was just here a few weeks ago for a young adult luncheon. Uh, and she was telling us that, Bishop Johnson, she was telling us that over, um, I think, 100 other petitions have been submitted on top of these three. Uh, and they've got to go through all of them. Can you imagine? I, I don't know how they're going to um, do this in like three or four days, but they've got to consider all these other plans and ideas that are coming in um, for the general conference in 2019. So it's just, um, there's a lot going on. Um, but um, I want to, I just wanted to briefly make you aware of what's happening. And I've talked to people in the church about this who have been coming through new membership classes uh, since I've been here. So you've kind of already gotten a sneak peek on this. And, um, but this is where we are currently. Um, if there, I want to provide two opportunities for you to, to learn more um, about this. Um, and I want to share those with you now. So actually this Wednesday, um, our bishop, Peggy Johnson, uh, it's her day on the Dover District. We're, so we're in the Dover District here. And she's going to be at Union in Bridgeville on Wednesday night, this Wednesday, I'll be there. It's from 6.30 to 8.30. And she's specifically going to be doing a presentation more in depth of what I just shared with you. So if, you wanna, if you're interested and you want to learn more or have questions, things like that, uh, you can hear it straight from our bishop Wednesday night just down the road in Bridgeville. So I want to let you know about that. And also, um, I'm going to invite anybody that's interested to, that wants to come back to our church. Um, I'll be hosting a, an evening um, not for debate, not for any of that, but just more informal information that, that you would need to know um, and a time for small group discussion um, amongst yourselves and things like that. And that's going to be September 30th uh, from 7 to 8.30 right here in the sanctuary. So I want to let you know of those, um, of those things that are coming up um, and to just please be in prayer. Um, and as I've said before, there are many faithful Christians that just disagree on this. You know, some people uh, feel that Scripture uh, clearly teaches that homosexuality is wrong, and they'd be going against Scripture to accept it, and others, others feel that, that these Scriptures have been misinterpreted based on uh, context, and they feel that it's wrong to not fully include uh, the LGBTQ people into the life uh, of the church. Uh, so no matter what our personal convictions may be on this and how, how we end up getting there, um, Let's remember um, love. Let's remember to, to listen to one another. It doesn't mean we have to agree with one another, but, but yelling and throwing fits, it just doesn't get us anywhere. It doesn't, it doesn't work. What's the point? We get so emotionally invested, and, and we're, at that point, it's just it's not helpful. And that's true on a whole host of controversial topics, by the way, not just, um, not just homosexuality. We could... We could talk about the death penalty, we could talk about abortion, we could talk about all sorts of things, and there's going to be differing views among every single one of you. And it's not just this. So 
we just got to listen to one another and, and, and love one another and show each other that we matter in our listening. But I'll tell you something that hasn't changed is that we're still called to make disciples. We're still called to follow the Great Commission, to go out into the world. We're still called to follow the greatest commandment that Jesus gives us, that we are to love God with all we've got, to love our neighbor as ourselves. And that's something I hope that the church around the world can agree with and get on board with. So back to this saying, the Bible says it, I believe it, that settles it. When we say that settles it, we don't leave room for dialogue and listening. You don't have to change your mind. And I don't have to change my mind. Your and my experience play a huge role, as I said, in how we interpret Scripture. So when we listen to others, and we listen to them well, instead of getting defensive, we can say, you know, I can see how you might come to that conclusion. I love you. I'm just not there. I don't agree with you on that. But thank you for sharing that with me. Let me share with you an alternative way. Each week, I've, I've kind of shared a, an alternative way of saying these statements, and um, I've kind of made those up along the way. And, um, but I want to read to you an alternative statement of the Bible says it, I believe it, that settles it. And this is actually a statement that I've just taken verbatim from Adam, Reverend Adam Hamilton's book, Half Truth, um, because no, no sense in reinventing the wheel. I thought what he said was uh, wonderful. So Instead of saying the Bible says it, I believe it, that settles it. Consider this. God influenced it. I read, study, and sometimes wrestle with it. And as I interpret it in the light of Jesus Christ, I hear God speak through it and seek to live its words the best that I can. I think that's powerful, and I think that's true. Because God is good, and God is faithful, and we can thank God for the Bible, and Although we may interpret certain scriptures differently at times, we can still rejoice that, that we have access to this inspired Holy Bible that we all love so dearly and that God still speaks to us today as we read it. So may we always be reading scripture, may we always be learning, and may we always be hearing the voice of God. And may the words of the Bible always point us to the true word of God, who is Jesus Christ the word that became flesh, the resurrected son of God who calls us all to come and follow. Amen? Let us pray. Oh God, we thank you for this time. And we, we just pray for your presence and 